In Matthew chapter 12, beginning in verse 22, it says, Then a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, and he healed him, so that the man spoke and saw. And all the people were amazed and said, Can this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, It is only by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. If Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds a strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. Either make a tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word that they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest, but finds none. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself. And they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. So also will it be with this evil generation. While he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. I was reading something this week about business. It said one of the things that you always have to factor in when you're making business decisions is the cost of opportunity. I thought that was interesting. The cost with each new avenue that you pursue in business or or me maybe even each new tool that you acquire is an opportunity that either will or will not happen based on whether you head down that road. And there's a cost 
involved in both directions, actually. When I'm looking at jobs and I'm working on houses, sometimes there's a job that I could do, but there's a tool that I would need for that job. And so sometimes that tool that I would need is a, can be a fairly decent expense. And so I weigh out in my mind, well, do I want to buy this tool or not? If I buy this tool, I can do that job. But then I have to factor in how much opportunity is there. Is there many jobs out there that have the opportunity to be done if I have that tool? Or are there few? And so as I look at those things and measure out those opportunities, opportunity can cost you for taking it because it's going to take time away from schedule. It's going to take money out of your pocket. So is that going to produce what you want it to produce? On the other hand, it's going to cost you if you miss it. If the opportunity is there and it's great, but you pass it by, then you're missing out on that opportunity as well. The reason that I bring that up is because as we come to this passage right here, there's some people with an opportunity right in front of them. And boy, do they miss the boat. Jesus has been there in Israel presenting himself as the Messiah, calling upon the nation of Israel to repent and to believe in him. And the leaders at this point, their opposition is growing very fierce. That opposition will finally culminate, it will climax at the cross. But as we look at the passage, that's exactly what's happening at this moment. The people are seeing the miracles of Jesus. And so the people are at this point saying, well, this has got to be the guy, right? I mean, isn't this, this has got to be the son of David that we're waiting for, the Messiah that's been promised, the deliverer. This, is, this has got to be him. And some people are starting to say, when the Messiah comes, is he going to do more than this? I think of Nicodemus, who saw the miracles of Christ and said, how can anybody do this except God be with him? The evidences that Jesus has been accomplishing through his miracles, the crowds are starting to notice and say, you know what, this, this just has to be the guy, doesn't it? Why aren't our religious leaders getting on board with this guy? And so now the religious leaders feel panicked. And their response is, get rid of him. And that's where we find in this passage It really comes to a head right here, and the leaders of Israel commit the unpardonable sin. I've gotten a lot of questions over the years, and people want to know, well, what's the unforgivable sin? Because Jesus mentions it right here. They want to know exactly what is that. Have I committed the unforgivable sin? I would always answer that, no, you haven't. And the reason is this. One, if you're worried about the fact that you've committed the unpardonable sin, then that means God is tugging at your heart, because otherwise you wouldn't be worried about it. And so God is working in your heart. If you had committed that unpardonable sin, he wouldn't be tugging on your heart. And so that in itself is a sign. The fact that you're worried about it is a sign that you have not committed it. Secondly, I don't believe the unpardonable sin is committed today. I think that this was historic. It was at this time and this place that they committed that unpardonable sin. And I don't think that it is around today. Now, that does not discount the fact that God may, in any individual's life, after drawing you to himself, God may, upon your hard hardness, at some point say, you know what, that's it, I'm done. And that's why I always caution, today is the day of salvation. Today is the accepted time. That's what the Bible always says. Oh, I've had people tell me before, you know what, I just don't really want that in my life right now. I don't want Christ in my life. Maybe someday later, maybe when I get older. I don't know if they're waiting for a deathbed conversion or what they're thinking. I'll live my life however I want to. And then while I'm laying there about to die, I'll ask God to save me. Well, that would work if it actually happened. But the problem is, is if God's been tugging on your heart through your life and you've hardened your heart, hardened your heart, hardened your heart, your heart's going to be pretty hard by the time you're laying on that deathbed. And that's why the Bible always encourages. It says, don't harden your heart. Now 
is the time of salvation. Second Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 2 says, For he says, In a favorable time I listened to you, and in a day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. So God is always calling people to make that decision to trust in his Son as their Savior and to do it now. Every opportunity, every time we think of Christ and whether or not to commit our life to Christ, it is a time where we're either going to do one of two things. We're either going to go toward Christ or we're going to go away from Christ. We're going to accept Him or we're going to reject Him. We're going to harden our hearts toward Him. And every time we harden our hearts toward Him, it makes us harder to accept Him the next time. In Hebrews chapter 3, he's talking to Christians in his day, but he's looking way back in Israel's history to when they were wandering in the desert in the wilderness, and those people hardened their hearts toward God. And in Hebrews chapter 3, in verse 7, he says, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for forty years, Therefore I was provoked with that generation and said they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways as I swore in my wrath. They shall not enter my rest. Now notice what he says there. He says, for 40 years they saw my works in the wilderness. What kinds of works? Well, he he gave them water out of a rock, for one thing. He gave them manna. They called it manna because the term manna means what is it. They didn't even know what it was. But he provided manna for them every day to eat. He had a windstorm blow in quails. He had all kinds of things. They lived for 40 years wandering in the wilderness and their shoes never wore out and their clothes never wore out. So God did amazing things taking care of them in the wilderness. And they saw all this right in front of them. And what did they do? They hardened their hearts. And so when God led them up to the wilderness, they brought God had opened the Red Sea and brought them through the Red Sea. He had delivered them by plagues in the nation of Egypt. And he brings them up to go into the promised land. And he says, now let's go. They hardened their heart and they would not go. And they hardened their heart on several occasions, more and more until finally he drew the line. And he says, that's it. You're not going in. You're going to die in the wilderness. You are not going to enter my rest by going into the promised land. We're going to stay out in the wilderness until this generation dies off and your children will enter. The book of Hebrews is writing to these people that are, they've made a commitment to Christ, but they're faltering. They're kind of thinking, you know, maybe I'll go back to my old life. He's saying, you can't do that. If you could go back to your old life, you're showing the same hard-heartedness of the people back in the desert back there. And look, they didn't get to enter his rest. You won't be able to enter his rest. He's saying, don't harden your heart today, this moment. Don't harden your heart, but be open toward Christ. As we look at the religious leaders of Jesus' day, that's what's going on with them. They have the opportunity. Christ has presented the kingdom before them, offered himself as the Messiah. They have that opportunity, but it turns out to be an opportunity that is lost. This isn't the first time they've opposed him. But on that day, that opportunity was lost forever because they committed the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Now, what is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? At this point in the book of Matthew, let's put it in its context and realize what we've seen in our study so far. We've seen Jesus presented in his person, who he is, at the first four chapters of the book of Matthew. We see that he's of the right lineage, going back to David. He's a descendant of David, a descendant of Abraham. We've seen that he was miraculously born to the Virgin Mary, fulfilling prophecy of the Old Testament Scripture. So he's the right guy in his person. He, he succeeded in overcoming the temptations of, from the devil himself. He's the right person. Then we've seen his teaching. 
And these people have heard Jesus' teaching. Not only have they heard his teaching, but they've seen his miracles. They know that he's fed 5,000 people with one small boy's lunch. They know that he's calmed a storm, showing his power over nature. They know that he's cleansed lepers. They know that he's healed blind people, made lame people walk. He even raised a little girl from the dead by this point right now. So Jesus has showed his power over disease, the human body. He's showed his power over the demonic world as he's cast out demons. He shows power over the physical realm as he's calmed storms. How much more can you give? So the leaders have a choice. He's obviously done all these amazing things, and we cannot deny it. So there's only two places where supernatural power is found. One is found in the power of God, and one is found in the power of Satan. So they're really pretty much limited to two choices. You've done this by the prince of the demons, not the power of God. Now this is why I, and and not just me, many people think that this cannot be committed today. These were people that were face-to-face with Christ. They saw the miracles. They heard his teaching. All of that presented right before them through the power of the Holy Spirit, and they attributed that to the devil. And at that point, Jesus says, you're done. Every other blasphemy, every other sin can be forgiven. This one will never be forgiven. Not for them personally, not for Israel as a nation. They have blown it. And now Jesus, even his teaching is going to change. We're not going to look there right now. We're going to look there next week. But when you get up into chapter 13, Jesus begins to teach in a way that he never taught before. And the disciples notice it and they say, what are you doing? How, why, why did you start? Why did you change your teaching method? And part of the reason that he changed it is he says, because those people that committed the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, it's no longer given to them to know. And so it's done in a way that would hide it from them, reveal it to others. And we'll learn about that next week. But they have crossed this line. They've crossed this point of no return. They've lost this opportunity. And why did they blow it so badly? Why did they miss that opportunity? Well, same reason people are missing it today. Now, granted, Jesus isn't right here in front of us. He's not going to walk down the aisle in a moment and heal blind people in our service. But you know what? We still have so much evidence that points to Christ and that he is who he said he who he said he was, and that he actually did the miracles and the things that he that the Bible says that he did, but people still deny it today. It's not because of a lack of proof or a lack of truth. It is because of the hardness of the human heart that Jesus is rejected. These people had all these things happen right in front of them, and they said that's the power of the devil before they would believe in Christ. As we look at this opportunity lost, we're going to notice that there are three areas where this evil that we're talking about is exhibited. Jesus corrects the people. The people say, you've done that by the power of the devil, and he corrects them for a few different reasons. He says, one, if, I, if it was by the power of Satan that he cast out Satan, why, why would he do that? Satan would be fighting against himself. It doesn't make any sense. Two, you have exorcisms that you claim are legitimate that happen by your people, and you say it's from the power of God. Then who am I doing it from? And he points out that this is crucial if, if I'm doing it by the power of God, then the kingdom of God has come unto you. You see, that's the whole point. The kingdom of God has come unto you. Later, he's going to say, you know what? Nineveh repented at the teaching of Jonah, and a greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south came up to hear the wisdom of Solomon. A greater than Solomon is here. And in the passage that we looked at last week, he said a greater than the temple is here. The whole point is all the stuff of the Old Testament was all symbolic, pointing 
to the fulfillment, the reality, which was Christ, he says, here I am, I'm here, I'm the Messiah, I'm the opportunity, I'm the kingdom, but you missed it. And then he also goes on and says, look, nobody can take over somebody's house or rob from somebody's house unless they first overcome the strong man of the house. And he's saying, by casting out Satan, I've showed you that I have overcome Satan. But the areas of weakness or the evil that are exhibited in their lives are, first of all, seen in their speech. As humans, we have trouble with our speech. Our sinful nature is in the core of our heart, and our heart feeds our lips. Proverbs chapter 10, verse 19 says, When words are many, transgression is not lacking, but whoever restrains his lips is prudent. You know, in other words, you know, if we, if we, the more we talk, the more opportunity there is to say something wrong. The more opportunity there is that our speech is sinful. Uh, James chapter 1, verse 26 says, If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. So our, our tongue impacts our religion. James chapter 3 would go on to say, he was talking about um, animals. He says, you know, we can tame about any beast that there is, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. And so we have trouble with our tongue. Why do we have trouble with our tongue? Well, Jesus points out in this passage that we have trouble with our tongue because we have trouble with our heart. Out of the heart, the mouth speaks. When we say something that we regret, it gives us a little insight, a little of the wickedness that really does lie down in the core of our being. It is revealing, giving us a glimpse of the ugliness that is in our, that is in our hearts. And Jesus does say that every uh, careless word that we ever speak will stand in judgment for. When you stop and think of all the careless words that have come out of your mouth, is there any of us that are really free from slanderous gossip or backbiting or, or arrogance? Or gives us a little indication of what's on the inside that we need to be so delivered from. That's exactly why we need a Savior. That also goes in the positive. Jesus said, let the tree be good and the fruit good, or let the tree be bad and the fruit bad. In other words, as is in the root, so is in the fruit. <laughs> Jesus says it can go for good, too. We see that in the Bible as well, that the tongue can be used for great good. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, and verse 13, it says, Since we have the same spirit of faith, according to what has been written, I believed, and so I spoke. We also believe, and so we also speak. The Apostle Paul is talking about why he is a minister, why he's taken the gospel to people that haven't heard it. He says, because I believe, I speak. Because I'm trusting in Christ, I speak about Him. I share Him with other people. Romans chapter 10 and verse 10 says, Even at the point of salvation we see this aspect in our life. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. You see, when, when faith takes root in our heart, our heart, our mouth speaks and confesses Christ. In Psalm 107, verses 1 and 2, it says, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom He has redeemed from trouble. You see, He's in the middle of praise right there, and He's exalting God for what He has done, for His, for his, steadfast, his steadfast love in our lives. And then He turns, and His very next response is, Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. In other words, you experience the goodness of, the, of God in your life. It just want, makes you want to shout it out. But these people weren't speaking of the goodness of God. Now, I understand, recognize that in the passage, Jesus did say every careless word we will stand in judgment for. So I do think that that is 
as it says, extends to everything. All the coarse joking that has happened uh, in our lives that has come out of our mouth, any, any words of gossip, anything, anything like that, we're held accountable for. But notice in the context of the passage, the issue at hand right now is what do you say about Christ? Pharisees had the opportunity, is Christ of God and the kingdom of heaven is here? Or is Christ of Satan? The Pharisees said Christ is of Satan. What they were saying, their words that they were being judged for, the words that they just lost all hope of forgiveness for, was words about Christ. That's exactly where this gospel's headed. When we get to Matthew chapter 16, Jesus is going to gather his disciples together and he's going to ask them this question. Who do people say that I am? Well, some people are going to say you're like John the Baptist risen from the dead or Elijah or one of the prophets. And then Jesus turns to the disciples and say, who do you say that I, the Son of Man, am? And Jesus, uh, Peter will step forward as kind of a spokesman and say, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. For all of the words that you will speak in your entire life, the most important ones that you will ever answer is to that question right there. What do you say of Christ? Do you confess him as Lord of your life or do you reject him? Those are the most important of all the words that we will ever utter. And the Pharisees and the scribes chose wrongly. And in a moment, with a few words out of their mouth that came out of their heart, they sealed their doom forever. That is a missed opportunity. Well, not only do we see the evil evil exhibited in their speech, but we also see it in a desire for a sign. Because they come before Jesus now and they ask him in verse 38, Then some of the scribes and the Pharisees answered him saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. And he answered them, This is an evil and adulterous generation that seeks after a sign. So he said that their evil was manifested in their speech. Their evil was manifested in their request to see a sign. It is kind of interesting when you look at the the Gospel of John. John uses the word sign repeatedly to refer to Christ's miracles. And we've already talked about in here how Christ's miracles were not just a bunch of good deeds. They were done for a purpose to show who he was, that he is the Son of God. So his miracles were signs. Jesus was doing signs for the people so that they could believe in him. In the Gospel of John, the very end of the book, it says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. The Apostle John recognized that they were signs to show you who He was, so you'd know you need to believe in this guy. Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 4 also points out that the miraculous that the apostles did All the miracles that they performed as they healed people was God's way of testifying that what they were saying was true. So the miracles were God's signs that the apostles were telling you the truth about God. So all these miracles were meant to be signs. So what does Jesus mean when he says an evil and an adulterous generation seeks after a sign when he's been giving them signs all the way along? Well, that is the very reason that it's so wicked. They have already seen him heal the sick and cleanse leprosy, make blind people see, lame people walk, deaf people hear, mute people speak. He's raised the dead, calmed the storm, fed the 5,000, things that we've already mentioned. He just right in front of them right now did this miracle of taking a guy that was demon-possessed, getting the demon out of him. He couldn't see, made him be able to see, couldn't speak, made him be able to speak. And they turn around and say, show us a sign. (laughs) It's just absurd. We see the evil in them by rejecting all that they were given. Who do you think you are to ask for your own personal sign 
from God. He's not the one with anything on the line. He's got nothing to lose. You have everything to lose. He's God. You're not. But these people had the gall to request their own personal sign from Jesus. And Jesus says there will be no sign given except for one. Just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the whale, the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the belly of the earth, and then he will rise again. I've talked to people before that have said, if God had just shown me that it's true, for crying out loud, God sent his Son to this earth to die in your place on the cross. He rose again from the dead, and he left a horde of witnesses to tell us about it. And we have the gall to say, if you could just prove it to me, if you just give me my own, my own personal sign that this is true, Jesus says, I'm not giving you that. That just shows the wickedness of your own heart. Then we also see it in their empty religion or maybe reformation. Because this, this one's found in the last story that he tells there. He tells a story about a person that has a demon within them and the demon is exercised. The demon leaves. And the demon leaves and it goes out and it wanders around. No place to go. Decides to go back to that person that he was in before. And when he gets back to that person, he finds that the person is cleaned up and emptied out. So in other words, it's looking at a life that is reformed. Somebody is saying, you know what, I'm going to turn over a new leaf. I'm going to get some things in my life that shouldn't be in my life. I'm going to get those things out. I'm going to clean up my life. You know what the problem with that is? It's empty. They're cleaning up their life, but they didn't fill their life. You see, the demon left, but nothing replaced them. What needed to replace them was Christ. Christianity isn't about us cleaning up our life. Christianity is about Christ, about us uh, allowing Christ into our life. He'll clean up your life, no doubt about it. But it's about our lives being full. It's not just about getting the sin out of your life. It's about getting Christ and His righteousness in your life. Now, He's not going to take residence with the devil. The demon had to go. But you see, that's the part that the religion of the, the Jewish leaders missed. They were all about getting the sin out of their life, getting their life being clean from the outward perspective and but their heart was still the same old corrupt heart. They had reformed their life. They had a religion. But sometimes the hardest people in the world to reach are religious people because they're so self-confident in their own righteousness. You know, in my own life, when I was oh, 18, 19 years old, I was so sure that I was going to heaven because I was a good guy. And I didn't even grow up in church. didn't have anything really to do with God other than praying to Him every night when I went to bed. I don't know what gave me the impression I was such a good guy. But in my own estimation, I was a good guy. Why wouldn't God like me? And I started going to church. And I went to church three times a week. Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. I was there faithfully three times a week. And I was hearing the gospel over and over and over. And you know what? It took a year and a half for me hearing the gospel over and over and over for it to finally sink in that I needed Christ. I had started to change my life. There was some music that I was listening to that I shouldn't have been listening to. I got rid of it. There was uh, probably some language that I was using that I shouldn't have been using. I got rid of that. I was cleaning up my life, but I was still, it was still empty. It wasn't until I realized my sinfulness, my depravity, that I recognized my need for Jesus. And at that moment, Jesus came in and filled me up. And boy, what a difference. See, before I had religion, now I had God. And there's, two, there's a vast difference between those two things. The Pharisees were very religious people, very outwardly expressive of their religion, but they were very evil. And it's found chiefly in what they would do with Christ. When we do that, Jesus says in his little story, the end of that guy was worse than the beginning. So in other words, the religion that that guy took on, the reformation that he took on cleaning up his life, left him empty. And because of that emptiness, seven demons were able to come back in. So his worst he ended up worse than in the beginning. 
the Apostle Peter says the same thing in, in uh, his epistle in Second Peter chapter 2. He's talking about false teachers here. He says, For if after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. What the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to his own vomit and the sow after washing herself returns to wallow in the mire. You can see the point at the very end. These people had gone toward Christ. They'd made outward changes in their life, but their internal nature, they were still the dog on the inside. They were still the the swine, the pig on the inside. Their nature had not been changed. So while they had made a show of religion, even to the point of teaching it, they did not have the reality of Christ inside of them. And so the end is worse than the first. And this is exactly why when we go into Matthew chapter 13 next week, And Jesus begins his new form of teaching. The very first point he's going to make is you need to be careful how you hear. Those people had an opportunity. Would have changed the whole surface of the world. Today would be a whole different place if they had accepted that opportunity back then. But for them, it was an opportunity lost. Why? Because of the evil that was in them. That evil was expressed or exhibited in their speech. It was exhibited in their demand for a sign. It was exhibited in their hollow religion 